So let's uh, take our Bibles in today and and turn in them to uh, Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to look at it in its entirety today. And thank you for being here with us. Whether you're here, you're online, we're always grateful you're with us. But we're going to look at a message entitled, The Foul Fruit of the Vineyard. Now, let's take our hearts to the Lord. Father, once again, we just say thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, your graciousness and your patience. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would just fill this time, uh, Lord, with the, the tangible expression of edifying the body, teaching us, Lord, and that our hearts would be open and ready and receptive to all that you have to say, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you uh, remember right, the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem is what's in focus for us for the moment. It began in chapter 2. It concludes here in chapter 5. Now in chapter 3, God tells them the way that he's going to judge them is through a series of shortages. Uh, that there would be a shortage of food, a shortage of water, a shortage in strong civil leaders, in strong spiritual leaders, in strong military leaders. Really a shortage of any and everything that they felt secured by or took confidence in. And what he would leave them with would be weak uh, foolish, incompetent leadership who would leave the nation in shambles. Deprivation and desolation would be the result of the choices that they had made. And ladies and gentlemen, God didn't need to do anything unique or somehow special in order to bring them into judgment. He just let them have their way. In verse 9 of chapter 3, it reads, Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. And here in chapter 5, God expands a bit more upon the kinds of sins that are soliciting his judgment. And he will expound on them in the form of pronouncing, or it begins in this form of a parable. Okay, so let's look beginning. Um, Shannon, would you mind just pulling me back just like maybe one notch? Um, in, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through the first seven verses together. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Now, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. And so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they not, or that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard is of the Lord of hosts. Uh, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry 
for help. And so the first six verses are our illustration, and verse 7 is the interpretation. It begins with the prophet sharing in a form of a song. You know, the idea perhaps if they wouldn't listen to uh, what he would say to them, maybe they would listen if he sang to them. I mean, after all, we'll see in a few minutes they were all about being entertained. But family, this parable was about a vineyard, a vineyard on a fruitful hill that had every advantage, every benefit that it could possibly be given. The ground was carefully cultivated and prepared. It was planted with the choicest vine, the very best that could be provided. It was uh, protected from harm's way, be it animals or would-be thieves that would want to break in and steal from the vineyard. In other words, the tower was placed in its midst for its protection. There was simply no reason why it shouldn't have been incredibly fruitful. The conditions and the provisions were perfect. And so the owner had every appropriate expectation uh, for a fruitful harvest. He made a wine press, but rather than bring forth good grapes or a fruitful harvest, it brought forth wild grapes or a foul Harvest. Now, the word for wild grapes, guys, goes beyond something that's kind of sour and unpleasant. It speaks of a foul-smelling, rotted, poisonous, worthless kind of a fruit. Now, it would have been bad enough had the vineyard brought forth no fruit, but it went beyond that. It brought forth bad fruit, worthless, harmful, foul fruit. Now, We know that this is a reference to what God had done for Israel and the fruit that Israel brought forth after all of the love and the care and provision and protection that God had made for them and given to them. But guys, something that we can take note of here, uh, if you just kind of want to see it in passing as we go through it, is that children are not always the product of their environment, okay? It's true that sometimes there will be the occasion where the disobedient, obstinate, disrespectful child is the direct result of some sin or terrible decision of the parent or the parents. But listen, there are other times when as a parent you have given them everything they need to succeed. You know, you, you've placed them in the best possible environment that you can provide. You've cleared away the debris. You've pointed them in the appropriate direction, and they still choose the path of sin. They still choose to feed the appetites of the flesh. Guys, think about Adam and Eve, right? I mean, they literally had everything perfect, God himself was the one who tended to and took care of them. You couldn't have asked for a better environment. Yet they chose the way of sin. Now, of course, we're grateful, aren't we, that God has made a way of reconciliation and restoration uh, through repentance toward God and faith toward Christ. But each individual comes to a place whereby they have to make a decision. It's called free will. Yes, God could have made robots if he wanted them. He didn't want them. Guys, you you know, right, what gives love its meaning and, and its power is the capacity of choice. And God wants us to choose to love him and to follow him 
and to walk with him and cultivate that relationship with him. He's done everything that he can. What more do we want him to do? Guys, he left the ivory palaces, the, the gold streets, the, you know, the, let's just, let's just call them the, the, I don't know what to call them. I just went absolutely blank, but you know, the, the complete perfection of heaven. Okay. And he came to this earth and he took on the form of a man, flesh and blood. He became sin for us. He died for us. He was raised so as to justify us. But you and me, we have a decision to make. How will we respond the invitation goes out. The provision has been made. It's up to you, right? How, how or what to do with that. But back to our context, God took Israel out of Egypt. He planted them in the land that he had sworn to Abraham to give to his descendants. He hedged them from the other nations around them as they grew. He gave them fertile soil, fruitful land. He gave them his word. He showed them his ways. He loved on them, took care of them, worked with them, provided everything they needed to bring forth the fruit of righteousness, to be the light of the world, to bring the hope of salvation to a dark and dying world. There was every expectation, and appropriately so, for good grapes, a, a fruitful harvest. But what came forth wasn't good. It was foul. It wasn't uh, good fruit. It was poisonous bad fruit. They enjoyed the goodness. They enjoyed the gifts. They just lost sight of the giver. And like I said last week, the interpretation certainly does not belong to us, but we can surely find application in that God has blessed the United States with freedom and prosperity unlike any other nation upon the face of the earth. And my, how we've enjoyed the goodness. My, how we've enjoyed the grace and the gifts. But man, we've forgotten the giver. The greatness of our nation, we like to think, is found in the etching of our constitution or the form of our government or the capitalistic hardworking reward rewarding the hardworking kind of society it's our great ingenuity it's our creativity the hard work and sweat equity we congratulate ourselves we worship the work of our own hands and forget about god who has blessed us so abundantly only out of his grace and his mercy so what will he do? Well, look what he says of Israel in verse 5. He says, I will take away its hedge. Ladies and gentlemen, there was a reason that little Israel was able to not only survive, but thrive amongst nations mightier and more fierce than they were. And it's because God had hedged them about God had hedged the nation. No one could touch it. Now, he says, he's going to burn it down. He's going to break its walls, and it will be trampled down. He's not going to tend to it. He's not going to take care of it. He's not going to prune it, protect it, water it, or anything else. It'll just be overrun with briars and thorns and dried up in drought. Do me a favor. Leave, keep your 
finger there or your little Bible ribbon, whatever, in Isaiah and, and leave and turn into your New Testament to the, Matthew, to the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 21, okay? Now let me know when you get there. Matthew chapter 21. We there? I love that. It's almost like you guys go through and make study of your Bibles. Matthew chapter 21. Let me draw your attention beginning in verse 33. Matthew chapter 21. Let's take our attention to verse 33. Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants and beat one, killed the other, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone this was the lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes and therefore i say to you the kingdom of god will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it a a prophecy of the gentiles coming into the fold and whoever falls on this stone will be broken and whomever it falls it will grind him to powder Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, well, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So Jesus here, and you can make your way back to Isaiah, essentially reiterates the point that our prophet is speaking of, and that is the failure of Israel and its leaders to bring forth the fruit that God is looking for. Now here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus highlights even more than Isaiah in that not only did the landowner do everything uh, to set the vineyard up for success, he also sent servants to check up on it. But rather than render the fruit, they killed the servants. They killed the prophets, you see. Finally, he sent his son. Now, this would be a reference to Christ himself, saying, surely they will respect my son. But when they saw him, they plotted, planned to kill him, which they did, and tried to take control of the vineyard for themselves. Now, Jesus said, what do you think the landowner is going to do? with those wicked and worthless men when he comes. Guys, the idea is that judgment is all that is left for these people. They've had every opportunity to render fruit, and they've not only failed, they've intentionally rebelled, okay? 
In John 15, Jesus again paints the picture of bringing forth fruit. He speaks of himself as the vine and, and uh, we being the branches and that as long as we abide in him and, and, and his word abides in us and that we would bring forth fruit. You see, family, listen to me. It doesn't get a whole lot clearer, okay? God is looking for the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of his love in our lives, He's inspecting us, drawing near to us. He's, he's wanting us to render the fruit of his investment into our lives back to him. Does that make sense to you? You know, we talk from time to time about what I refer to as divine initiative and human responsibility. And what that means is that God always initiates, but we respond. In other words, God has done all the work. He plants the vineyard, he sows the seed, you know, he, he uh, hedges it around, he builds the tower. Now, as it pertains to you and me, he did the work, he resolved the sin dilemma, he initiated the relationship with us through the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's done it all. We simply receive of his grace, the salvation he so freely provides, but the point here, the principle that should be coming into focus for you is the fact that there should be a net effect of his salvation at work in our lives. In other words, guys, it's that commonly woven principle that's threaded throughout your Bible that we're not saved by works, but surely God's grace will go to work. It will produce works. It will cause us to walk in good works. Are you following me? There will be results from knowing Jesus Christ that will come into fruition in our lives. Paul said that like this. He said, but by the grace, notice the highlight is on the grace, by the grace of God, I am, and you are, you know, and I am what I am, he says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Wait, does that mean we can receive the grace of God in vain? Absolutely, he talks about that. But he says, notice, why wasn't it in vain? I, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I. You see, it's not about me and my works, but the grace of God, which was with me. God's grace will produce works in and through us. It will cause us to, to put our hands to the plow, to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us. And so the question that confronts me and confronts you is what is the fruit? Think about it. What is the fruit of God's grace in your life? What's the net effect? What's happening? What's being rendered, you see? Charles Spurgeon said, Has it been so with us? Have we rewarded the well-beloved thus ungratefully for all his pains? Have we given him hardness of heart instead of repentance, unbelief instead of faith, indifference instead of love, idleness instead of industry, impurity instead of holiness. Family, God would have us to be fruitful for his glory. And one of the keys of being fruitful, we will find, is 
being in the word, getting in God's word, letting his word abide in us. And so we talk about it's one thing to get into God's word, but it's another thing to allow God's word to get into us. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, as for the foul fruit that Israel produced, God spells it out for him here uh, in the following verses by sharing six woes. And again, though the interpretation belongs to Israel, I would encourage you to have ears to hear. Surely there's application for you and me that we need to guard against as well. Look at verse 8. He says, woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there's no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed will yield one ephah. Guys, here we have what we might call the first foul fruit on the list, and essentially it is greed, it is covetousness. Uh, and it's not so much rural development I, that God is against, I, at least I don't think, uh, as far as I can tell. It's that insatiable appetite to buy more and more property, to enrich oneself at the expense of others. Meaning, you know, you're buying it all up. You're buying it all up, and you're making this huge estate. Now there's no room for anyone else. Guys, it comes back to the question we we're confronted with a couple of weeks back, and that is, how much is enough? You know, maybe they were developing these massive estates to sell to other crooked leaders in the land. Essentially, God is saying, everything you're doing to enrich yourself is ultimately going to fall apart. Uh, the deals won't go through. The houses will be vacant. The fields will just not yield anything for you. In verse 11, we have the second woe. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings and the tambourine and the flute and the wine are in their feasts, but they do not, underline it, regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hands. And therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore Sheol, if your Bible says hell like old King James, that's not speaking of hell like uh, we would think of the flames. He's talking about the grave, Sheol, right? It has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he he who is jubilant shall descend into it, and people shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. And then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, and in the waste places of the fat ones strangers shall eat." So this is the foul fruit of drunkenness and substance abuse. Now, uh, people who like to drink uh, generally get kind of semi-confrontational uh, about the fact that the Bible doesn't forbid drinking. 
And that's true. But I'm just going to set this out here and let, you know, just kind of leave it right here. And that is that the Bible, you will be hard pressed to find the Bible expounding upon alcohol in a positive light. Okay. Now I can find you a plethora of passages uh, that speak negatively about or warn you against it. Proverbs chapter 22 would be just one example Check it out. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without a cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed drink. You understand what wisdom is saying here, right? Um, Alcohol will bring despair, sorrow, contention, complaints into your life. It has this way of sneaking up on you and destroying everything that you hold dear. It causes fights, family contentions, wounds without a cause, whether it be physically or emotionally, things that you would, your mouth becomes unhinged, you see. You start wounding people and you're saying things and you're going back and forth and all of a sudden, all of these, everything that you hold dear, wounds without a cause, you see. He carries on. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. You know, you go to a restaurant and like their food presentation looks good, but then you know, when you turn the page and it's like those alcoholic drinks, man, they got them looking good. You know what I'm saying? Man, that looks like it would be tasty and all. And he says, look, don't be lured in. Don't be drawn in. When it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly, at the last, it bites like a serpent. It stings like a viper. In other words, it looks so tempting, so tantalizing, so enticing, so alluring, but it's poison. It's drawing you in to destroy your life. He says, your eyes will see strange things. Notice your heart will utter perverse things, things that normally you would hold in check. Like I said, you just become unhinged. You just start spewing all this this poison, this venom. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I wasn't hurt. They've beaten me. I didn't feel it. Notice, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Just like our present passage. Listen, if when you wake up in the morning, you need a little drink to get the day started, guys, 99.9% chance you're an alcoholic. You know, um, there's already a problem. Rising early to follow intoxicating drink. And then he says, continuing throughout the day into the night. God is here indicting kind of that constant party making light of, you know, this party frame of mind. Love the music, love the skilled entertainer, he says here. Which in and of themselves, they're not, guys, they're not bad things. Good music, skilled artisans, all the you know, guys that can really play an instrument, wonderful. The problem, he says, is they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hands. Uh, just FYI, FYI, parents, if your children um, are watching you, witnessing you, seeing you, 
uh, drink and coping with life. Like, this is how you cope. This is where you go. I mean, I've had a rough day, you know, and you pop a cold one or whatever the case may be or various substances or whatever. Don't act shocked when they turn the same direction. All right? You are giving them the example. They are looking to you. They are learning from you. Okay? But back to this exalting of entertainers. People are so eager to regard the work of man. But they don't regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. Guys, we marvel at the operation of Steve Jobs' hands, right? I mean, here we are. We all might I would guess a massive majority of us have something that now, obviously, he's been dead for a number of years, but Apple was his baby. You know, we marvel at the work of Elon Musk's hands or, you know, fill in the blank. These guys that push the boundaries, that innovate so brilliantly. Guys, I promise you that your reproductive system or your nervous system, for that matter, any system of the human anatomy or you know, aquatic life, whatever the case may be, animal, the animal kingdom, the variety and complexity of creation, the vast enormity of the sun and the moon and the stars and all the galaxies down to the smallest single cell amoeba or whatever, you know, the work of the Lord's hands, it goes uncelebrated, unappreciated. It's taken for granted, and yet it all screams to mankind. It's pointing to, it's testifying of a creator. You know, we recognize that the iPhone uh, or the shoes you're wearing, uh, the building you're in, the chairs in which you sit. I mean, you could point to it, this pulpit, the keyboard, the instruments, you know, uh, your shirt, whatever. None of it would exist apart from a designer and a creator. Yet the things I just mentioned, you know, about life and the terrestrial and celestial bodies and all of infinitely greater complexity, well, they just kind of happen by random chance. What? No way. It's the work of the Lord. It's the operation of his hands. Guys, the psalmist said the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and the night and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. In other words, there's no language barrier between creation and what God is trying to point to so that man will see that, that he is there, right? Those things which are, are visible testify of the invisible is what Paul talked about in Romans. He says, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. God says here, my people don't regard me, nor consider the operation of my hands. Therefore, verse 13, my people have gone into captivity. Why? Underline it, because they have no knowledge. What does that mean? They are ignorant of the word of God. Uh, they've blown off the precepts and and principles of God. They've given themselves over to debauchery, to being debased. Hosea, uh, in Hosea it reads like this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
Guys, this is why it's so important that we assemble like this, that you're spending time on the regular in your Bible, that we might grow in our knowledge and understanding and uh, application of Him and His Word, that we might lead lives that regard Him, that respect Him as our Creator, as our Heavenly Father, in, in ways that are pleasing to Him, you see. Now in verses 14 through 17... Uh, Isaiah expands on the death and destruction that's coming, how the pride of the people will be brought low, and that God alone will be exalted and hallowed in righteousness. And in verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Uh, the third foul fruit we might call liberalism. People plunging into sin, uh, acting and act, you know, drawing, uh, actually drawing sin to themselves through cords uh, of, of ropes of emptiness or vanity. Guys, this is not a woe to the man who stumbles occasionally, as people sometimes will. He's talking about people who actively pursue and justify sin in their lives, okay? They seek it out. They draw it in. They're bound to it and in it. They drag it with them. I was thinking of... Uh, what was that? I don't remember what it's called. Is it a, is it a Christmas story? What the, the Ebenezer Scrooge one? Is that what it's called? What is that one called? Carol. Christmas Carol. Yeah. Christmas story had, I think, uh, yeah, Ralphie in it, I think. <laughs> You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Uh, but a Christmas Carol. You remember, and was it the ghost of Christmas past was like Bob Marley or something? Is that who it was? Bob Marley? Who is it? Someone Marley. Who was it? Help me. Huh? Jacob Marley. Guys, top 10 answers on the board. I'm messing it all up. You guys are with me, though. You're gracious and full of mercy. Jacob Marley. But remember, he shows up and he's bound in all these chains and he's dragging all these chains of all of the sin and stuff that he had. Uh, you know, all the wrongdoings, all the things he had taken pleasure in, all the wrong that he had done. Bob Marley. <laughs> but my, my point is that that's sort of, and I completely blew it, but that's sort of the picture that we have here that men are dragging sin. It's like they're bound, not only drawn to it, but they're bound in it and by it. And they mistake the mercy and patience of God for apathy or worse yet, approval. They mock the Lord. That's what it means here when he says, let him do his worst. You know, go ahead, uh, pour it out. God, give us what you got. Let the Holy One draw near. Let's see what you got. They defy the judgment of God against their sin. Well, God, if you're there, then just strike me dead. You know, these kinds of like ignorant, foolhardy, arrogant statements. In verse 20, did we, okay, yeah, we went through, see, I'm all messed up. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Underline it. 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We touched on this last week. There's no closet shame or sin anymore. People openly, arrogantly flaunt their sin as though it's some great thing, you know. Essentially calling evil good and good, you know, the standards, the absolutes of God's word. And those of you who want to see it upheld, well, they call those things evil. You're the evil oppressor because you want to keep sin in its rightful, shameful place. We might recognize this as the sin of relativism, a lack of absolutes. You know, I mean, uh, who are you to say what's right for me? The only absolute is that there are no absolutes. Are you absolutely sure? You know, now the, now the phrase is, speak your truth. Well, let me speak my truth. What does that even mean? I mean that, 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 that phrase just grinds on me. Speak my truth. It's either true or it's not. You know what I'm saying? And there are moral absolutes. Not because I say so, because God says so. Ladies and gentlemen, right is right and wrong is wrong. And I'm going to tell you something. Majority approval is not what makes something right. Okay? Now, in verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Intellectualism, right? So we have liberalism, relativism, intellectualism, people who think they're the expert. Guys, think about your personal field of study, what it is that you excel in. Maybe it's construction, maybe it's some trade. You know, for me, it would be the Bible. I've devoted up to this point in the upwards of 30 years, give or take, maybe a little more of my life to studying it, learning it, seeking to live it, you know. But as Shakespeare said, he said, but man, proud man, most ignorant of what he's most assured. In other words, for all that I know in my area of study, guys, (laughs) you could quantify that times 10, times 20, times 1,000 that I don't know. You know, uh, someone who studies medicine, maybe cardiology, perhaps you consider yourself the authority and expert in that field. But what about the entirety of the human anatomy? There's a reason why you go to a general practitioner and they take you so far, then they send you to a specialist, right? Or, Or whatever the case may be. Or even in that field specifically, we just don't know all that we think we know. Guys, not fully. Think about all there is to know in life. Now, you've, you've uh, probably heard the kind of that debate tactic where a Christian was debating with an atheist and, and he was trying to say that there was no God and all of that. 
And so he asked him the question, well, how much do you think that you know of everything that there is to know? I mean, judicially, medically, trade-wise, uh, you know, again, uh, astrology or, you know, astronomy, whatever you say, uh, you, whatever film, mathematics, uh, of everything that there is to know, quantum physics, how much do you think you know of everything there is to, you could possibly know uh, that as far as this whole thing, life is concerned? He said, well, I don't know, maybe 20%, which that's huge. I mean, I'm going to tell you it's like 0.00002% would be more accurate. But so the idea is, well, then is it possible that God exists in the other 80% of which you know nothing about? You know, um, guys, of everything there is to know in life, how much do we really know? I would encourage you to write it down and read it later. Job chapters 38 and 39. You're going to discover it ain't much. What we know ain't much. Um, So he rebukes intellectualism here. Uh, The man who thinks he's wise in his own eyes, right? Verse 22. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Guys, this is, this is the second time that God indicts the drinker. We might call this person the functioning alcoholic. You know, they, they take pride in the fact that they can really hold their liquor. They could be however many down the pike and you wouldn't even know it. You know, they're still going to work, they're still doing the things, still driving, and you, you don't even realize that, man, they can really hold their liquor, you know. They can really drink you under the table. Nothing to be proud of here, only something to be repentant of. Guys, what's the common thread in all of these woes, in all of this sin? They're all about self and self-indulgence, feeding the flesh, rather than crucifying the flesh, looking out for self rather than honoring the Lord. Look at verse 24. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So here it is again. Why do people want what they want rather than what's right? Because they have rejected and despised, that is, had no regard for the word of God. Judgment could be avoided through simple obedience from the heart. But instead, he says, they will be devoured like fire consumes the stubble and the chaff. In other words, suddenly, severely, and completely. Okay? Look at verse 25. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled, and their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. In other words, guys, uh, he has stretched out, but notice this, guys. He's willing to save them. He's willing to save them for all this. 
His anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He's willing to save them if they'll but turn from their sin. His hand is stretched out to them. They won't grab it in repentance. So what will he do? Look at verse 26, and we'll finish up here. Uh, He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and whistle to them from the end of the earth, and surely they will come with speed swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt on their loins be loosed, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, whose arrows are sharp and who uh, all, and all their bows are bent, and their horses' hooves will seem like flint, and their wheels will be like a whirlwind wind and their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of their prey. Then they will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. In other words, they're not in jeopardy. They're going to do what they're going to do. And in that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow and the light is darkened by the clouds. And uh, Abby, you can start making your way up here, whatever. But the idea here is he's going to take away his hedge. He's going to whistle to the nations from the ends of the earth. You know, hey, you know, here they are. Come get them. Egypt, Syria, Assyria, ultimately Babylon would carry them off into captivity. Here's the thing about those other nations, God says. They're going to be all business. No one will weary or stumble among them. They will roar like young lions, and no one will deliver. Guys, the strong men of Judah were mighty at drinking wine. Mighty. Drinking alcohol, partying, entertainment. Their enemies would be focused, sharp, prepared for war. And Judah would surely fall. So again, guys, as the Lord surveys the vineyard of our lives, what kind of fruit does he find? The fruit of righteousness, Loving God, loving others, or the fruit of placing self above all else. Greed, covetousness, perhaps drunkenness, intellectualism, relativism, disregard for his word. He do, look, how does he say it any more plainly? Judgment is coming. It'll be severe. It'll be complete. But that nail-scarred hand, he says, is outstretched still. Grace is available. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we just pray that we would honor regard and obey your word from the heart and that the seed of your word would bring forth the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of your love in our lives. 
And guys, while we're sitting here, if you're just in that place where if you were to be honest with yourself and honest with God, you'd say, you know what? The fruit of my life is pretty foul. I'm just going to be honest. It's pretty foul. I need God to wash over me, to cleanse me, to forgive me of my sin, to make me new. Then for you, it's all about surrender. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Turn from your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And guys, I never know if we're all assembled here as a family, getting into God's Word and seeking to grow in sanctification and all, or if you're here and you, you don't know the Lord and your primary need is salvation. And so I always like to open that door to just say, you know what? If you need Christ to come into your life, to forgive you of your sin, and to restore and reconcile you to God. And this moment's for you. And so if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart, I want to pray for you. If you're willing to humble yourself and say, you know what, that's, that's me. I need Christ. I need new life. And I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, and if I see it, I'll, I'll say so. I see you back there. God bless you. Anyone else, today's a day for you. Don't worry about how old or young you are, where you've been, or what you've done. Just... Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that you are tugging on hearts and changing lives. Lord, we come and and we sit and we hear your word, but we don't want to be those who are hearers only, deceiving ourselves, thinking we've done our duty, we've heard God's word, now on through the week. Lord, that we would be doers of your word, responding appropriately to the exhortation, the conviction, the challenge that your spirit brings into our hearts, into our lives. Make us holy, God, from the inside out, that we would render unto you the fruit that you are due. And so, Lord, every heart that's responding to you in that way, I just pray for that you would lift them up, establish them, do great and wonderful works through them for the glory of your own name. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.